The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Welcome to the Home Cinema Podcast for March. Coming up, Steve reports from the Philips and Toshiba launch events. We review the new Samsung F8000 LED TV and SVS subwoofers. And we wrap up by looking at the state of the AV industry on the high street. And joining me this evening is Steve Withers and Ed Selly. Good evening, guys. Good evening, Phil. Evening, Phil. So let's uh, kick things off. There's been a, a few product announcements, a few product launches since we were last on the podcast. Um, so, Steve, uh, first of all, you took a trip over to Amsterdam with Philips. Um, what did they have to show? They had their new TV lineup, Phil, um, most of which was, uh, wasn't a massive surprise. I mean, basically, it was, it was just refinements on last year's models. The top-of-the-line model that I reviewed uh, just after Christmas, um, that's still remaining the top of the line. So they won't be announcing a new version of that until later in the year. Um, I guess their, their big announcement that they had, and that was um, embargoed until just last week, was their new design line, uh, which is basically uh, a gigantic piece of, of glass, um, literally going from top of the TV down to the floor. So rather than having a traditional stand, it is literally a sheet of glass that you either hang on the wall or, or literally lean against the wall. Uh, that incorporates most of the features that from their sort of not, not quite top tier, but just below top tier model. You know, things like smart TV, uh, 2D, 3D, etc. And, and then obviously this quite unique design. And they, they were very proud of it, I have to say, and, and I'll make quite a big deal about it last week when they, when they actually um, lowered the embargo and, and, and publicly announced it. Uh, I have to say, it is striking, but no, but by the very nature of the fact that it's a big sheet of glass, it's very reflective. So it, I, I, I wasn't entirely sold on the design myself. I mean, I, the idea of leaning your TV against the wall was quite radical. So personally, I mean, whilst I was very impressed with, with the uh, PF9707 that I reviewed, I, I thought that this sort of design line was a bit, maybe a, a bit too designy for its own good. Uh, but that's what they had to announce. Uh, and then Toshiba also had their new um, product launch. They had they had uh, series one, two, four, six, seven, and nine. Interestingly, what struck me was that the majority of their new lineup are just two D. They seem to have dropped three D on a lot of the models. So the series seven had active shutter three D, but otherwise most of the models didn't have any three D at all, uh, which, which was surprising. And then um, their series nine is the the ultra HD or four K TVs, which you and I saw at CES, Phil. This is obviously the European launch. Yeah, they 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 were sixty six. They were going from eighty four inch, which obviously suggests we know who made that particular panel because it was also active um, passive three D. Um, then there was a sixty five inch again passive three D, and then a fifty eight inch uh, active three D. So it would seem that um, at least the eighty four and sixty five are LG panels. I don't know who's made, making the the fifty eight inch active shutter shutter four K TV. They look, look, looked good with um, native 4K content. Um, obviously, they're pushing their Sivo um, 4K upscaling engine, which will be on their 4K TVs. That didn't look so good in the demo that I saw, but they had everything maxed out on it. So basically, it was introducing a hell of a lot of noise. Um, it, we have to obviously have to wait and see when we get one in, hopefully for review, uh, to see how good the Sivo upscaling engine actually is when set up correctly. Certainly in the demo, that they, they had it, they had it maxed out and everything, and it was just ruining the image. I preferred the 1080p TV next to it, to be honest. Um, 
so so that so that wasn't the best example I could have thought of. But with the native stuff, it looked very good. Right. So that's uh, the Philips design line of TVs and the nine series. I understand, Steve, that's been launched at IFA that's correct, later yes. in the year. So we'll have to wait and and see what that's going to be like. And and all we know at the minute is it's a four K. TV. Toshiba lineup. Something about Toshiba, the last few years, they used to make some really fantastic TVs. But you made this comment, and certainly looking at what they've announced, they, they seem to be going very much down the budget route when it comes to their TV lineup. Yeah, there's, that, that's definitely uh, their strategy for this year, I think. Looking at the TVs, I mean, they were, you know, they, they had a certain, um, they looked quite nice. But when you got up close to them, I definitely felt them to be. Uh, aiming for the budget market. The pricing's very competitive. That's certainly that's true. There's no question about that. I mean, in terms of pricing, it's extremely aggressive. Um, but yeah, they, they did feel a little bit uh, budgety uh, in places. Um, less so with the obviously the, the, the 4K panels, which are much more high end. But it'd be interesting to see when they, they obviously wouldn't give us some um, pricing on those. So uh, I think it'd be very interesting to see how, how aggressive they are in terms of pricing on the 4K panels. Because, um, I mean, I think for most people, y- y- that's going to be key in terms of uh, its acceptance this year. I think if, if they can hit certain price points, not just Toshiba, but any of the manufacturers this year with, with the Ultra HD panels, it might help um, push the, the format more amongst the, sort of the mass market um, in light of the fact there's very little in the way of current 4K content to watch on it. Um, but in terms of the sort of more standard, traditional 1080p models, yeah, they, 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 were, they were very much... Uh, Aimed at, the, aimed at the budget end of the market. Uh, and that seemed to be the strategy this this year. Well, I mean, here's hoping that uh, when we get the samples through that, that they actually perform because last year they didn't do too badly in terms of performance. I mean, they, they won a number of badges for their TVs last year. Um, I think I think Mark was the sole uh, Toshiba reviewer. Yeah, I've got to be honest, year. I've actually seen a TV <laughs> from Toshiba for two years. Um, I, I guess I would just like to see them try something a little bit different like they did you know, a few years back with, uh, I think it was the F355, I think that was the model number, it was like a picture frame TV, it looked nice, it was ahead of the game, they were ahead of Samsung at that point, in terms of the, the bezel design and so on, and it was actually a really good performing LCD TV, so it'll be interesting to see how they stack up to our testing and so on this year, so that's two product launches uh, that we've covered recently, uh, Philips and Toshiba. And also, we've had the first flagship TV uh, to come through for review this year. Kind of caught us by surprise because it was basically a phone call. This has just landed in the country. Can we bring it over to you for review? And that was Samsung's 55-inch F8000, Steve. And uh, it got highly recommended. It did. Uh, and it was a bit of a surprise. I mean, they literally did bring it over uh, for for review. Um, I came over en masse from from their offices with the TV. Uh, I think it, it uh, arrived on the Monday at the, you know, at the airport was with me by the Wednesday. It's not even launched until April. So this is, we are getting this quite a long way ahead of its actual launch. So it's, you know, it's got absolutely everything <laughs> that they could possibly cram into a TV. Um, it's absolutely gorgeous to look at. It's a, be- a beautiful design, uh, quite striking, a bit different. It's got this sort of curved, what they call the arc stand, which obviously means you need quite a wide uh, stand to put it, the TV onto because um, because it's basically the, the width of the entire TV. Uh, and uh, obviously it can't be swiveled, so you need to position it correctly to look at the TV. But, you know, it, it looks gorgeous even when it's off, as is often the case with Samsung TVs. So it looked, it looked beautiful, uh, when it was off, and it also looked great when it was on, because um, obviously in the past, 
not just Samsung, but lots of manufacturers have problems with uh, backlight uniformity because of you, they're using edge LED to light the back panel and bouncing it off a mirror effectively behind the panel itself. This time, the backlight uniformity was, was excellent. There was um, no evidence of clouding, no uh, bright corners or edges where the lights actually are. Uh, I was very impressed with the backlight uniformity. Um, the black levels were excellent for, for um, an LCD TV that was using a VA panel. Um, the processing was very good last year. There was a, occasionally there'd be a little uh, frame jump every now and then, which, which could get quite annoying. Not at all this year. Didn't see that once. Um, it was a really impressive TV. Great picture. Uh, fantastic color accuracy, both out of the box and obviously after calibration, really good calibration controls. It had uh, their new smart TV platform, which is absolutely state of the art. I mean, it's got it's got everything you could possibly imagine in terms of video on demand, thousands and thousands of apps, uh, networking facilities. It's got a great remote app. Um, yeah, it was just one of those TVs that just does everything and it does everything well. Uh, you know, if you're looking for, uh, it's, it, let me be fair, it's not cheap. You know, the 55 inch model is two and a half thousand pounds, but you are getting what you pay for here. You're getting a beautiful TV, both on and off. You're getting uh, all the all the smart TV features. You're getting yeah, everything you could possibly imagine. Uh, one of the things they have done this year, which I'm really glad about, is um, first of all, they've added back the fourth HDMI input because there were only three last year. There are four again this year and three of them are downward facing which I've always been complaining about for the last few years, rather than having them up, up sidewards facing near the edge. They're downward facing, so you've got better cable management. You can mount it on the wall easily, but you haven't got any cables poking out the sides of the TV. Um, yeah, it was, just, it was just a really well-designed, well-thought-out, well-made, well-performing TV. Uh, you know, definitely worthy of a highly recommended badge. You really couldn't go wrong with it. And if, you, if you're looking for an LED LCD TV, um, certainly it should be on, on, your, on your list to demo if you and the only possible point of you know complaint really that i had was if you're a big time gamer if you're a hardcore gamer um the best i could get out of it was 41 milliseconds which is about average these days but probably a bit a bit slow for some of the people that you know that really play a lot of game do a lot of gaming but otherwise a uh, fantastic tv no steve here's the difficult question mm -hmm. would you buy it and would you use it in a dark room to watch films I, I actually uh, missed it when it went. <laughs> I, I really did like it. I thought, I, I thought it looked, like I said, it really looked fantastic in my lounge. We set it off nicely. Um, I was enjoying all the features it had, uh, using it during the day particularly. It was very impressive. In the evenings, with all the lights out, uh, it was good. It's not plasma. You know, it's not going to compete with the plasma in that sense. But with a bit of biased lighting in the room, I thought in the evenings, uh, the blacks looked great. So pitch black room, maybe not, but in a, in a, in a sort of a, the average living room in the evening with, with a side light on somewhere in the room, uh, actually, I thought it held its own very well. Definitely a step up from last year where uh, I think some of the Samsung TVs did struggle in darker conditions. Um, this year, it actually held its own pretty well, even even in the evening at night time. Well, they have had about four years now to get the backlight sorted out and the, and the uniformity sorted out. So, you know, that sounds impressive from what you're saying on the the sample that you've looked at and i have to say when i saw it at ces i thought it was an absolutely gorgeous looking tv it really is one of those design statements and ed it's, it seems to be that that's the way the market's moving now get the wife on board or get the partner <laughs> on board not to be sexist um high performance but looks great as well Oh, absolutely. And I, I think, it, you know, obviously we, we do the whole wife acceptance factor, but as as a society, we are caring more about industrial design on virtually everything that we're buying at the moment. And 
obviously television's represent a challenge because the long and the short of it is it doesn't matter whether they're a big piece of glass leaning against a wall or whatever Samsung are doing with this arced stand. You've still got to try and dress up this you know, huge flat expanse of, of screen. But I mean, I've, I've just been idly leafing through the images that uh, accompany the review. And from my, you know, from my perspective, I'm possibly not the most sartorially elegant human being that ever strode the earth, but it does look like it would be perfectly at home in, in a variety of environments and not just the sort of sleek minimalist, you know, the sort of flats that exist only in fiction. Um, mainly because obviously, uh, you know, in reality, things like cabling tends to sort of get in the way of it. But it, there, you're right that the the sort of effort that has gone into into these sort of things is is quite impressive, and it of course applies to all sorts of other things. I mean, uh, if you told me uh, ten years ago that uh, that I mean, for example, the uh, SVS that I've just reviewed. Again, the attention to to detail, the the way it's been designed, the way it's been finished. Um, yeah, that everyone is everyone is really moving forward. It's no longer enough for it to perform well in an enthusiastic sense of the word. It really does have to deliver as a piece of furniture, as, as something that we live with day in, day out. It's interesting you say that because um, the whole thing from Samsung at the minute seems to be that they are pushing for an ecosystem. So it's not just the TV, it's their mobile phone, it's their tablet, um, it's the Blu-ray players, it's their lifestyle products. They're looking for this ecosystem, and I guess they're taking that from Apple. You just have to look at how well designed and how desirable uh, Apple products are nowadays. And and it seems to be that that's the way Samsung are, are heading it. They're putting an awful lot, not just into the products, but into the design, Stephen. Um, when you've got such a nice-looking product, and it looks a little bit like their mobile phone and tablets, and it all talks to each other, and it's all the same ecosystem... You know, they they could be on a winner here in, in getting people to actually make use of the features that are on the TVs and, and other devices. Well, yeah, there's absolutely there's absolutely no question that's true, Phil. I mean, I don't own a, a, a Samsung mobile phone, but if you do, uh, the interaction between that and the TV is, is absolutely spectacular. I mean, it's, it's all intuitive. It's all really easy to use. The F8000 has quad-core processing, so it's genuinely really, really fast. Web, web browsing on it, was uh, uh, basically as fast as it would be if I was doing it on my laptop. And that's a big step forward because previously it was kind of slow and painful. And you think, why would you do it on a TV? Because it's so much quicker and easier to do it on your tablet or your laptop. But actually, if you can do it quickly on a TV, you're more inclined to actually do that. And, and that, that, was a, that applied to the entire platform. It was just really fast, really slick, really easy to use. Everything connected well. The, uh, the remote app, I mean, I was using it on an, on a, on an iPhone. Uh, I turned it, I, I, you know, you load up the app, turn it on, or enter it. Immediately, it starts streaming live TV to your phone. Uh, so if you wanted to go and make a cup of tea while you're watching football or something like that, you could do that without missing any of the action. You know, that was really slick. And I mean, other people try to do that, but quite often it doesn't work. I mean, this, this, this did it straight away. Immediately, there's there's the TV image and sound on your on your phone or your on your tablet, and then obviously you can use it as a remote control as well. So that was very cool. Uh, you know, it connected full flawlessly with with my home network. You know, you could download videos and music and watch, look at photographs. Everything was. They they are. You're right, Phil. They are trying to mirror to a degree. I think the kind of ecosystem that Apple have created for their products and Samsung, obviously, being as they are the largest phone manufacturer have clearly got a leg up there in terms of having a device that they can connect with their TVs. But going back to um, Ed's, Ed's point, it, it, is, it is it is a design statement. It is something that you can 
look at and think that looks. I mean, I've never been a massive fan of the very narrow bezel, you know, the very narrow bezel which they introduced last year. But actually, this year I, I found myself you know, kind of warming to it, particularly with 3D content. Um, it really, uh, it really made the the image stand out more, and, and definitely made 3D have more impact. Um, when you were watching it, perhaps less so with 2D, but even then, I guess I'm getting used to it now. Um, yeah, I, 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 like the question you asked me, Phil, would I buy it? If I was looking for an LED LCD TV, it'd certainly be on my list. So there we go. That's the Samsung UE55 F8000. Uh, it gets a thumbs up from Steve. It also gets the highly recommended badge. It's the first flagship of the year and uh, impressive stuff so far. And Steve also mentioned the smart TV system that comes with Samsung's TVs this year. And you can check out a separate review that goes, well, pretty in-depth there, Steve, into the whole uh, smart TV system. Yeah, I mean, we, we started doing this last year, reviewing the smart TV platforms uh, separately from the TVs themselves, because they, they do so much now. There's just so much there that if you did include it in the TV review, the TV would be like, you know, 12,000 words long. Um, so... As, as with last year, this year, again, we're doing the same thing. So far, we've done one for the Panasonic system, which Mark did. I've done one for the Samsung system. Um, it, it was about 4,500 words long, Phil, so it's, it's as, long, as long as any of the TV reviews, really. Uh, hopefully, we've gone into quite a lot of detail in terms of the, the features that are available, you know, both interaction, um, video on demand, the apps, everything. In the case of Samsung, um, it was a reference status badge for that one. It is an absolutely amazing system. They were reference status last year. They, you know, they reference status. And I like to point out that they mentioned it last year, but on some of the TVs you saw on the back of it, there was the Evolution Kit space. They are launching an Evolution Kit this year. So if you own a 2012 Samsung, um, you can buy well, for certain Samsung. So that, so basically the, the, the high end ones, you can buy this Evolution Kit to be about 250 pounds. Uh, it will come with a new remote control as well. And you can basically slot it into the space on the back of the TV and you'll have quad core processing. You'll have the entirely, the whole new platform, everything. So, you know, I mean, I think that's pretty cool of a manufacturer to offer an upgrade sort of path for their existing TVs uh, rather than just making you buy the new one to get all the new features. So, uh, again, I think that's a nice little feature from Samsung. OK, so enough about TVs, but let's stick with the design aspect, uh, because the one thing that you don't want sitting in your lounge is a massive, great big 15 or 18 inch box that's a subwoofer um, to get the best performance uh, from your home cinema system. It's always recommended to have a high quality subwoofer. But Ed, the problem is, like we said before, the wife acceptance factor, huge box in the room, usually black. Uh, you're not going to get that past the wife. There is no getting around the fact that um, the moment that you, you're going to try and accommodate a driver of that size, uh, you know, you, unless you bend the laws of physics beyond the point that we understand at the moment, it's just not going to it's not going to be small. Um, but it was interesting. It's been a long time, I'll be honest, since I've had a really large subwoofer in the house. And the last unit that I spent any time with domestically was um, the fairly rare uh, more than short performance nine, uh, which I made use of for a little while. Um, and, it, you know, with the best will in the world, finished to a beautiful standard, uh, as much care and effort had been made to, to, to put some sort of design flourish into it. There was still no getting around the fact that it was a giant box and, um, you know, it, it stuck out like, like a sore thumb. So I, I have to admit, I was... Uh, you know, somewhat nervous, especially when I saw the size of the box 
for the SVS SB13 Ultra when it turned up. Um, the courier made it abundantly clear that um, he, he thought this was entirely out of order, being sent some, that being asked to unload something that large. But once I got that out of the box, I have to admit that, I mean, let's be completely clear here, this is not a compact device, whatever SVS label it has. I have to say it was finished and constructed in such a way that you know, as much as any box, a 17-inch cube in any direction can sort of vanish into an interior space, I thought it did a very commendable job at doing so. Um, is it as elegant as uh, a 55-inch Samsung LED? Probably not. Is it more elegant than you might expect something that large and that powerful to be? Yes, I, I think it was. So that's the design side out of the way. You've got it past the partner. Um, how did it perform? Well, I, I have to say, Phil, that... Um, uh, it performed well enough with me that that I want one. Uh, if you're asking the same question that you asked to, to me that you did for Steve with the television, uh, I thought it was sensational. Uh, as I made clear in the review, I haven't been able to do a side-by-side -side comparison with the Ken Kreisel uh, sub that Ruff, Russell tested at uh, pretty much the uh, give or take the same price point. So it would probably be worthwhile doing a side-by-side uh, -side comparison. It does appear that the SVS is rather better sort of as finished, if not built, it certainly looks more uh, looks more aesthetically pleasing than the, than the uh, Ken Kreisel sub does. But it it was just sensational. Even though I think in in my poxy terraced house, I don't think I really really asked too much of it. Just the levels of control, just the cohesion, and the way that it just effortlessly is genuinely subsonic for a good proportion of its performance envelope was oh as i say it's been it's been a while since i've lived uh, had had any time with a subwoofer that size and it's it's been fantastic and I, I i was genuinely sad to see it go rather than just a little bit upset ed you won't mind me saying this that you're more of a a two-channel dude um more into your your music side of things and uh you know you're more at home reviewing a pair of speakers in a stereo setup than maybe the 5.1 setup. Adding the subwoofer in, it's an interesting point that Steve raised when we were off here um, about music and using a subwoofer. What's your thoughts? Well, um, I guess I, I'm pretty Luddite in this regard. I've, I've yet to be genuinely convinced by, by any um, sort of 2.1 uh, system in this regard. Don't get me wrong, I think the SVS is astoundingly agile for a driver that size. When you think about the size and weight of a 13-inch driver built for base extension, you know, simply getting it to change direction quickly is, is a genuine challenge. So I, I really need to make it clear that I'm not being specifically derogatory about the SB13. Um, but really, there it, it just it's still like, dancing with someone who i don't know may, may, maybe they've got a broken toe it just half a beat behind uh, when you really don't want it to be and it's not even a case of oh i'm just listening to pounding 140 bpm dance music just m the way that that certain speakers can dynamically shift from starting and stopping um especially for example the speakers i use upstairs have a, an, an isobaric uh, driver array at the bottom so that's two drivers stacked in a in a in a sealed chamber and they are astoundingly fast and when I brought them down here and I, I sort of got it all integrated and up and running with the SB13 I still on balance for my personal beliefs I'd rather trade off that bottom octave not have it 
but it's just the, the result of just having two speakers working together. It, it just for me is a little bit more seamless and a little bit more cohesive. Um, I am approaching this from the perspective where you know the, the, the sort of setup and EQing options that I, I've got at the moment are perhaps not then they're certainly not state of the art. So it would be interesting to see with some of the flagship AV receivers if there's a way of of, of possibly taking that sort of half beat delay away. But uh, for me as it stands I'd, I'd still rather just have two reasonably sized speakers and trade off that last little bit of bass for when i'm actually listening to music properly so ed um at this point i know there's going to be about 50 percent of listeners agreeing with you um depending on their two channel setup and how they listen to music and there's going to be another 50 percent who are saying oh don't be silly add, the, add a subwoofer in there you're getting the full range frequency range in there um even if cds are pretty well compressed nowadays um so there's going to be an argument point. I guess at this point, people can uh, reply to the podcast thread in the podcast forum, give us your thoughts. But rounding up in the SVS, what was your what was your final thoughts on it? The, the, I think the thing that stood out the most, um, just literally living with it in the lounge, obviously I you know sat down and watched some films, did the, the sort of proper review test sequences, as you might expect. But just living with it day to day, um, I just was astonished at how utterly seamless it was and how in you know you you assume that something that large and that powerful it's always going to be noticeable but as i said in the review you'd be watching something not necessarily a particularly bassy sequence and energy that you could swear blind was coming out of the speakers if you flick the subwoofer off you just became aware of just how much it was effortlessly adding to proceedings and the the argument for having a device that large running well within its performance envelope uh for me it's it's absolutely compelling i would have never considered the worth of having a subwoofer that large in in a lounge the size that i have um but now no i'm i'm pretty much a convert uh, i would really really like one um and I, I would certainly, you know, be looking at subwoofers of at least 12 inches in driver size with, with, with some serious horsepower behind them rather than sort of making do on some of the sort of smaller multi-driver arrangements or, or, or other solutions. I'm, I'm a convert. Um, and yes, I, I, it's been a fantastic experience. So that was the SVS SB13 Ultra. It got highly recommended. Badge reviews up there, avforums.com forward slash reviews and we've got another svs sub uh, coming along in the next few weeks from steve you've got the uh, pb 1000 initial thoughts initial thoughts phil would be that it's quite large <laughs> uh powerful um but, but reasonably priced i don't know how much how much is the the ultra that you reviewed sb 13 uh, roughly 1800 pounds right okay this is 499 so it's slightly more realistic price for most of listeners i suspect but you still get plenty of oomph a nice big it's quite a big 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 black box, to be fair, but uh, yeah, there's an agility, there's a, there's a power to it. It really adds to film soundtracks, particularly. Um, but also, if you've got a, a well EQ'd room, uh, I think um, it can add to audio as well to, to music listening. Um, yeah, I've, I've been I've been impressed by. It. I mean, this is my first SVS, and um, yeah, so far I, I've been very impressed by. It. I think I think it's it's be four nine nine well spent in my opinion. Of course, a big difference here is uh, the PB is a ported design whereas yes, the is. 13 is a sealed box head so um interesting to see the approach at the different price levels there but 
sounded interesting, Steve. Look forward to that review. Um, so let's move on to our final discussion point uh, this evening. And that is that, well, Panasonic have taken the unusual step this year, Steve, of uh, the high-end models in their lineup only being available uh, in independents in Panasonic stores and with dealers who can demonstrate the product properly um, and it won't be available, uh, well, it will be available online, but um, to get the five-year warranty and everything else, you have to go to one of these dealers. It's going to be limited supply. Interesting way of approaching the top-end TVs. Yeah, it is. I mean, they did some. They did a little bit of this last year, but this this year it's much more explicit. There, you know, particularly with something like the ZT65, which is obviously going to be an enthusiast product aimed at a very specific market. They don't want people just buying this off the internet willy-nilly, a sight unseen. I mean, obviously, supply will be limited anyway. But the idea behind it, and I think it's a valid one, is that if you're buying a product like this, you know, a four thousand pound television, you really should be demoing it first. You should be able to see it in the right kind of conditions. I mean, this is a TV where black levels are key. So you want to see it in a pitch black demo room, ideally, uh, where you can truly appreciate what it's capable of. And so I, I actually applaud uh, Panasonic for trying to you know, to promote their TVs and to support their dealers in this way by, by only having certain models, the higher end ones, available in this way th- through their dealer network. And I, I think it's good because there's a real problem at the moment where if you want to, we always say in our reviews, you know, obviously we give our opinion, we test them, we try and be objective as possible. At the end of it, we say, but ultimately, you you need to go and see it for yourself. The problem is, it's becoming harder and harder and harder to actually do that. So at least in the case of, say, the ZT65, you will be able to go to a, a Panasonic dealer and see that TV in, a, in the best possible environment and make up your mind about whether you think it's worth spending however much, you know, the £4,000 it'll cost. You know, and it's a shame that a there are less and less places available on the high street where you can do this, and b that more manufacturers don't do it as well. You know, to, to try and support that kind of brick and mortar approach to their sales, as well as just having everything online. Because uh, don't get me wrong, I, I buy lots of stuff online. You know, you can get some fantastic bargains online. But the one thing you can't do online is obviously go and see the product uh, and demo it prior to buying it. And when you're talking about sort of you know. Four thousand pound TVs or five or six thousand pound projectors, you know anyone who's spending that kind of money should be demoing it first. And but and I appreciate the problem sometimes is, and people ask this question quite a lot. On we had that question actually, funnily enough, we talked about this at the beginning. The Philips uh, nine seven oh seven. The people were asking, where can I see this TV? Where can I demo it? I want to buy it. Where can I buy it from? And that was one of the problems that Philips has had is in terms of distribution. You know, you, you want to see these TVs. You want to demo them if you before you part with your hard-earned cash, and that's absolutely understandable. And it's becoming harder and harder to just do that. Ed, I guess from a – and you used to work for a manufacturer on the audio side of things, but I guess as a manufacturer, the last thing you want as well is, is your uh, more high-end products – being on a show floor with three or four hundred pound products and the Saturday student staff who doesn't know anything about the product trying to demonstrate this to potential customers and the product is not seen in the right light. It's a minefield. Um, obviously, you have to be in the game to to be up for you know, consideration for purchase in the first place. But as you say, if your product is out and on display and they're making a complete horlicks of it, 
um, that's not going to win you any sales. Um, and uh, training staff uh, is is a painting the fourth bridge exercise. Uh, even in good times, there's normally sufficient staff turnover for many of the stores um, in question that you're never going to have a complete cadre of people that know exactly what each one of your products does. And um, as you know, when times are tight, that's time spent training staff is time when staff aren't selling anything. Uh, so it becomes a natural, if not necessarily desirable reaction for, for retailers to cut back on the amount of time that manufacturers can spend really, really teaching staff to, to know what they're, they're doing. Um, it's it's a sort of difficult one. There is, a, a I suppose, a considered difference between audio and, and display equipment in this regard in so much as if you um, are Panasonic and you can get one of these TVs in situ, make sure it's set up with some degree of, of, of you know, a, a care and attention. It will presumably in itself continue to perform in, in, in a reasonably strong way. Audio equipment, it can't be running all the time. It can't be, um, you know, it can't be there in optimal conditions all the time. And especially when you get to items like high-end loudspeakers, um, and, you know, every single one of them has slightly different preferences for, for you know, room, room size, uh, toe-in, spacing, so on and so forth. And when they're just all in a big line or just playing out onto the shop floor, you could actually end up with a sound which is so, so awful that the last thing anyone is going to do is drop several thousand pounds on it. I guess it's a, it's a bit of a catch-22 and we'd love to hear the retailer side of this story and, and maybe in future podcasts we'll try and get a few in on the podcast to tell us what it's actually like but it, it's one of these catch-22s isn't it where I'm sure the retailer would love to sell uh, lots of the high-end kit because you know his, his margin's going to be a little bit bigger on that and he gets the pride in demonstrating that properly to the to the consumer the consumer can see the benefit of spending the extra money and and buying that product the problem we have is um, you just have to look at the the current economy. You just have to look at how many businesses are folding on a weekly basis, uh, especially in, in technology terms. We've lost a few really big retailers in the last few months, uh, certainly over the Christmas period. And like Steve said earlier on, it's getting really, really difficult to um, go and find somewhere that is suitable to demonstrate and and find out what these products are like. I mean, speaking for myself, in the Northeast, we used to have six independent dealers um, who range from really high-end hi-fi to your box shifters. The only people that still exist, the box shifters, because keeping this equipment in stock as well, when you're talking about high-quality and, and high-price products, you have to keep that in stock as well, and there's not a lot of retailers who will take the risk to have that kind of you know ten thousand pound loudspeakers in stock um because that's ten thousand pounds they've got wrapped up in something that they'll maybe sell one of in 12 months yeah it's um that the, there are you know there's, there's huge de de sort of problems in in trying to do this you know for want of a better word properly um i mean there are some extraordinary examples of um if you like calculated risk again leaning towards the more sort of two channel items there is uh, a very peculiar, very distinctive-looking uh, amplifier come DAC, all-in-one arrangement made by a French company called Devalier. Um, uh, and uh, being slightly unkind, it, more than anything else, it looks like a pair of bathroom scales, except one that costs £12,000. Um, extraordinarily, 
it has managed to sort of capture the albeit limited uh, sort of size market but the the, the attention it, it's garnered in that that category means that i've been to a couple of dealers now where they will be holding one on display and one or two in stock ready to go at a, a you know at twelve thousand pounds if something does capture the attention of of its of its sort of consumer group enough it can be done but the idea of doing that for multiple strings of products well the the only recourse is bankruptcy you're talking about holding hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of gear and with all that entails in space insurance and, and overheads they, they can't win in, in in a sense but i guess it's a case of trying to identify what products are warrant putting the extra time in and then trying to do the best around them now, obviously, we're an AV forum. We have uh, hundreds of thousands of people visiting the site. As members, we have millions of people ending up on the site every month, unique visitors. Lots and lots of talk about these products. A lack of places to go and demonstrate them, Steve. So really, yes, we're giving the right message, but at the end of the day, what's the poor consumer going to do where um, we're giving, like you say, the Philips 9707, uh, a highly recommended badge and saying this is well worth additioning and they can't go and get it so what's a solution honestly phil i'm not sure i mean if you think about it logically it's only going to get worse isn't it i mean the sheer the sheer economics of it is becoming un- untenable i mean as we've already said the amount of stock you have to have have to have in terms of uh, for demonstration purposes now that's money tied up in stock that you won't, probably won't sell then you have to have the actual premises. Then you have to have the premises kitted out correctly. I mean, you know, it, there is a, a big outlay involved in having demonstration facilities available in a brick and mortar store. And you're competing against, uh, not even you know, these days, you're not even competing against, um, you know, stack them high and sell them cheaply. But I mean, there's still, I guess, richer sounds. And in all fairness to richer sounds, they do have, I mean, the one in Bath, I, I've been there a few times, done a bit of training for some of the guys that work there to help them, you know, help them, you know, understand things about things like calibration that kind of stuff so at least they they take an interest in doing that and trying to be informative for their customers they do have a small demonstration uh, area available where they show the the vt50 for example but last year's model was in there you know with darkened room and etc so, so they make an effort even though they're traditionally you know we're known as being the, the stack of high and southern cheap kind of place but where else are you going to go anymore i mean there's curry's pc world well that, that that's about the only other one left um, otherwise, it's the small independents, and they're and they're struggling because they're competing not just against you know the big retailers anymore because they're almost all gone. They're competing against the internet, and and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, we all use it as well. Uh, if you read on the forums, there'd be the people that are trying to find somewhere to demo it, and the people that are just crowing about the fact they've just got it really cheaply on the internet. Well, that's that that that's just not going to get. That's just just going to get worse and worse and worse unless, as Panasonic are trying to do. Some of the manufacturers actually put their money where their mouth is and support some of the independent retailers. And as Ed's pointed out, you know, if you've got well-trained staff who know those products selling them, it's going to be better than having, you know, a, a, you know students working at weekends who have no idea what they're talking about. And, and you know, you've all this investment. We've, we've seen it, haven't we, Phil, where we've seen 3D TV set up wrong in stores. So you've done all this. One of the reasons I suspect why 3D did not succeed as well as maybe people thought it was, was because people go into a store, they look through, the glasses aren't turned on, you know, or they're, they're not syncing anymore, or there's something wrong with the setup. They think that looks terrible. Uh, and, you know, they don't buy it. 
Uh, and that's where the, it falls down at point of sale. You do all this investment, all this research, you build this product, and then it gets to the last stage in the process and the ball gets dropped. Uh, so I, I think maybe the onus now is upon the, man, the manufacturers. If they want to sell higher end, higher margin, enthusiast products, they need to find a way of letting the people who are potentially going to buy these products actually see them in their best possible conditions, you know, being presented in the best possible light um, in some kind of uh, demo facility at, at an independent retailer. One other area where I think manufacturers, some are already picking up the slack on this, and I think others are going to have to look very long and hard about how this works. Uh, it may come to the stage where if the dealer is holding the demonstration unit um, and that's got the space, it's been set up and everyone's happy with it, the manufacturer is then, if you like, also offering some of the logistics chain to uh, to how this works. The customer says, yes, that's brilliant, I'll take it. And it's okay, it's not in store ready to go, but if it's done before close of play on a on a on a any day, Monday to Friday. So if it's done before 5 p.m., they can hit the go button and it goes directly from the manufacturer to or or the distributor, so to speak, to, to the customer. And you know, the dealer isn't holding multiple units um, at, at massive expense themselves. I have to be honest, whilst there is a level of immediate gratification, if someone's buying something online, it's not going to turn up any quicker than that. Uh, it, it would just give dealers a bit more headroom and a bit more leeway. And given that many of the larger manufacturers have got really quite excellent logistics facilities as it stands, it just strikes me as sensible for them to, to put a little bit more weight on that that end of it. And, and if you like, take a little bit of slack off the dealer. If we move back to the Panasonic thing, um, Yes, it's nice to see them do that and put some faith in the product and send it to dealers who are going to demonstrate it properly. But you hinted at it before, Ed. That's taken them out of a lot of the retailers where there would maybe have been uh, an on-the-spot purchase. Um, you know, if you're not in, in all the retailers or you're not in the big stores, then people don't know about your product and... Um, are these people likely to go in, into an independent or a, or a branded manufacturer's franchise store um, and, and buy that product because, well, they've been to the big warehouse manufacturers and they can't see it. So it's not there, it's not visible, they're not going to buy it. It's a, it's a minefield, isn't it? Um, I guess for me, the, uh, the I feel like the litmus test, and I don't know if Steve knows the answer to this, uh, I mean, where where does John Lewis sit? in the in the scheme of uh, do they count as sufficiently far up the food chain that this television will be available through them because that would be for me that would be if you like the if you like the bench a window into another world where you could come in looking for something and if this television has been set up correctly it's in i mean for example in the milton Keynes, john lewis there's a sort of alcove area where some of the more prestige items are and normally set up with some degree of care and attention i mean if that counts as good enough for it i think they they might get away with it if it is literally more specialist than that i i have to say phil i do sort of agree that you might be they, they might be in a degree of difficulty now, turning the clock back maybe five, six years ago, Ed, there there was a tendency for, I'm not going to name the company, but certainly on the AVR amplifier side of things, once a product hit a certain price point, um, it was only available in dealers and it was not available online and anybody selling it online was immediately had their account taken off them. 
that seemed to be quite an aggressive approach five years ago. Um, would that kind of approach work nowadays, or do you think it, it's it's too far cutting your nose off to spite your face? It's it, there's two two aspects that possibly have changed the game slightly. Um, for starters, the the way that AVR set themselves up these days is sufficiently self-explanatory and sufficiently good that uh, some of the worries that people will spend, you know, anything up to two or three thousand pounds and buy something, and because at no stage has uh, you know they you know tried it, demoed it. It could sound like a bag of spanners. The way, obviously, that the room EQ systems work now, at auto setup and so on and so forth, I, I do think there's less danger of a product, you know, literally being nowhere near optimal performance than perhaps was the case even five or six years ago. Um, and also, the nature of how products can be supported online has also come on some way there as well. Whereas, even comparatively recently, if someone had bought something and you know, ultimately the dealer was several hundred miles away because it had been sold online and really wasn't that interested. And the manufacturer ended up, you know, doing all of that support, not really seeing any benefit from doing so. And at the same time, struggling to do support because you couldn't really see what the customer was seeing. It was, it could, if they, if they had a subjective problem, you couldn't necessarily get to the bottom of it easily or suggest anything that would make, you know, make things better quickly. So manufacturers, it wasn't simply this whole, you know, it wasn't simply preservation of margin and, and, you know, looking after, looking after their own that caused them, you know, certain manufacturers to say, look, enough is enough. It, it ultimately, it meant that a dealer was effectively getting all of the return from selling it and then would wash their hands of, of, of performing, of, you know, performing any of the after sales. That means that a good product becomes a great product when, when set up correctly. Uh, these days, as I say, they're doing it a little bit better themselves, and the, the means to support the customer has improved considerably as well. I still think that there is an argument that certain products are fabulously unsuited to being sold directly, um, but that's more of a two-channel thing than a multi-channel thing. Although I'd still be reticent about spending that much money on a device I'd never heard. I guess the, the last point, uh, because we are running out of time, is uh, is the internet and buying on the internet. And I have heard it from um, a couple of retailers, uh, not necessarily independents, but the things are, are stacked unfairly against the retailer when it comes to buying online. And one of the things that, that they mentioned within that is is this seven-day cooling-off period, this distance selling regulation that's there. Um, a lot of people from the retail saying, well, that's stacked unfairly against us because... Nowadays, all people can do is uh, buy the product, try it out. If they don't like it, they send it back. And a lot of these online retailers will take it back, no questions asked. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, you know, you can't come out against things that that benefit us as a consumer. But equally, you read a certain, you read certain things, and they are horribly open to abuse, and and will will favour any organisation that can stomach the you know let's face it nobody will pay the the list price for something which has already been to somebody else's house so it's always going to favor a larger organization that can more easily swallow those costs than a smaller more sort of independent exercise and this is where again it comes down to the the smaller retailer realistically has to get someone through the door and make sure that they are genuinely happy with what they're buying 
before it, it, it goes away. Whereas the a larger retailer can go, you know, let's wing it out online. It's going several hundred miles away. It might come back, but you know, we're going to sell three more of them in the in the same week. Let, let's let's take let, we'll accept those odds and go with it. Um, the problem is I don't really have a solution. I, I'm not for a second proposing that that we should remove a, a, another layer of, of, of consumer rights. Um, there's winners and losers to doing it either way. Um, and it sort of becomes self-fulfilling. Uh, I was saying to to, to Steve and you the, uh, before the podcast began, uh, when we were discussing subjects over email, uh, I mean, I have been to see two reasonably well-known dealers in the last in, the, in in March so far for different different purposes and both of them are concentrating more and more on two-channel because there is a degree of personalization demos are still very much de rigueur and there's an you know, they feel they can genuinely add something to the experience and the the, the risks are altogether lower as well um, and it sort of begins to count more and more against AV as something which is correctly demmed and correctly you know set up in store it it sort of you know becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy but i i wish i had an answer of how to solve it without us surrendering consumer rights but i'm afraid i, I don't i think ultimately every all, all this reflects a change in our society over the last few years to be honest there was a time when people were prepared to pay a little extra for good service and 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 everything that came with that. So you would be demoed, you would look at the product, you'd listen to it, you'd try it out. Maybe you'd even try it out in your home first, because obviously if you're talking about audio products, the room is key. So even if you've got a great demo room at, at the retailers, it doesn't mean it's going to sound any good at your house. Uh, all this kind of stuff is expensive. It takes time, it costs money. But ultimately you were paying for, for that experience. Now everyone just wants everything immediately. They just want it for nothing. They just want it online. They just want it now. They just want it as cheap as possible. Uh, and that just applies to everything in life, not just audio and video. And and I, and I think it's I think maybe it's we're at the the end of you know we're the dying of a of a our hobby, if you like, audio and video, particularly audio possibly, but even video as well. Particularly talk about something like a, a projector, you know, where really, <laughs> you know, it needs to be set up correctly in the right environment, and you need to you need to demo it before you spend that kind of money. Yeah, this this was our hobby, and we and we enjoyed it, and we would go along to it. I don't know about you guys, but I was always around, you know, um, specialist retailers hanging out um, long before I ever did this for a living. But just when it was when it was a hobby, I would go and check out new products coming in, do demos, you know. But and they knew they they would tolerate me because they knew that I was going to spend money there. I was going to buy, but buy products. So I was going to. They showed me something I liked. I was, eventually I was going to buy it. Um, so, so that, so there was a, a degree of, you know, kind of a symbiotic relationship, really, where I would hang out and look at stuff, but ultimately I'd buy it, and then they tolerated my, you know, annoying them from time to time. But that was part of the whole, the fun of it, really. It was like going to record stores and flicking through albums and stuff like that. You don't do it anymore. I just buy stuff online. society is changing our way we live is changing in so many ways and this is just one of them unfortunately and and i guess it's the dying of the light as far as this goes uh one day there won't be any retailers left for us to go and look at stuff in and it'll be really sad but i don't i I just can't see it Uh, i can we can stem the tide for for a time but inevitably they're all going to be gone one day oh that's a sad view (laughs) (laughs) but i i completely get what you're saying there steve um I used to do the same thing before uh, this was my living. I used to, um, well, I knew 
at least four or five dealers who were local to me. I was on first name terms with them. Used to go and have uh, a cup of tea on a Saturday, um, listen to what was new, have a look around, demo some product. Um, and like you say, you know, they became not friends, but they became uh, good acquaintances. You knew each other. There was a relationship there, and they knew that um, you know. <laughs> maybe one month out of the 12, I was going to go in and I was going to drop a shed load of money on something. And I was happy dropping that load of money on something because I knew I knew the guys, I knew it was well demoed, I knew if there was going to be any issues afterwards um, that I could go back and it would get sorted out uh, properly and there and then. And I guess we, we've lost that for the convenience of the internet and for the convenience of online selling. and And maybe you know, five or ten years down the line, what you're saying might come to pass. But then again, you have to look at uh, the flip of the coin and how technology is being sold on the high street as well. And I'm going to bring it back to the A word again, but just look at an Apple store. How many times do you walk into an Apple store and you think, I want that and I'm going to drop some money on it? That's actually true. Whenever I walk into the Apple store, it's like I've, I've walked into the future. I love going in them. It's, they're just really, really effortlessly, effortlessly cool. Uh, and everything's laid out and you play with all the toys. And yeah, I went in on last weekend and bought an Apple TV. I, I didn't really need it, but I just had to buy something when I was in there. Couldn't help myself. Uh, you're right. You're right. Actually, Apple's a good example where they've got stores. So if they can do it, but, well, it goes back to what I was saying. It's, it's The onus is on the manufacturer. If they want their product to be seen by consumers, uh, in a store of some sort, they're going to have to start stepping up to the plate. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, at the moment, I don't think they are, with, with a few notable exceptions that we've already mentioned. Um, and maybe maybe that's a good example, Phil, where a manufacturer, uh, you know, is trying to interact with their customers in a personal in a, in a personal way in an actual store. And yeah, I love going in the Apple store in Bath. And it's, it's one of these things as well, Ed, which really scrambles my mind sometimes um, with the Apple approach to things. You can walk in, they've got the Genius Bar, the, the sales assistant walk around. There's no tills anywhere, um, so there's no point, point of sales anywhere. If, if you want to buy something, you hand your credit card or whatever to the, to the guy, he zaps it on his machine and that's it done and your receipt's in your email account. Um, you get all that side of things, but then again, they have their online side where you can then up-spec what you want to buy, which you can't do in the store. So you want to buy a MacBook, you're stuck to the 8 gig of RAM that it comes with. If you buy it through this through the retail outlet, you have to go online to their online sales to up that to 16 gig of RAM. And, and again, it's like, how does it work? How do they get away with it? I you see the Apple model, it, it does, it has one crucial difference. If we ignore aesthetics, we ignore desirability. They're a subjective area. The one key difference that Apple has as a benefit over, I suppose, anyone trying to do the same thing with Hi-Fi is that the products are self-contained. You can have a row of them. Uh, you can have multiple people asking about with them at any one time. And they, they demo in that regard. That's absolutely fine. Uh, this is an altogether more difficult ask with anything which is supposed to work in conjunction with other items. Um, which may, means that I don't know how much all of the model is trans, uh, transferable. I do, however, agree that the, the you can walk in for immediate gratification and get product A there and then, or tweak and and you know choose what you want 
uh, with, from the website and, and accept that waiting two or three days is, is the requirement for that. Certainly two or three days in the case of iPad stuff. Obviously, it's a little bit longer depending on what boxes you tick on the MacBooks. Um, and indeed, my iPad is a, is a, is a refit model um, and it's a 3G one. So for whatever reason, Milton Keynes in particular, their Apple store has always been a bit low on the three on 3G iPads, whether they're refit or otherwise. And yes, I was quite prepared to wait a couple of days because it was the model I wanted. And, you know, there was a useful amount of money off. I I don't know. I, I have to say I'm going to be a slight discord note here. Maybe it's just my local Apple store, but I feel desperately on edge when I'm there. There's lots of people, far, normally far too many people in it. Um, and yeah, that, with all that that entails. And I, I find that um, I have found that with less so with the geniuses and I leave them out of this, but I do find that some of the store staff, it's a thin veneer of knowledge. And then if you ask something, you know, for example, what happens when you use one of these products outside of the Apple ecosystem, it all starts to break down. Um, no, there are definitely lessons to be learned from it, but I'm not completely convinced that it, it works hugely well for for non-self-contained products and certainly then in the case of non-self-contained products what happens when you take your product and put it with somebody else's um even relatively inexperienced relatively you know low level dealers are able to to do that in a way that i'm not always convinced that um you, you see in, in in the single brand shops i guess um we really need to end this conversation and the one thing that we haven't touched upon um in ways of getting the product out there to the public and that's shows trade shows or hi-fi shows or home cinema shows that kind of thing it's not something that is popular at the moment for for whatever reason however the shows that are surviving like bristol they get a good footfall every year of uh enthusiasts but also people bringing the family along for especially if it's raining uh, for a for a wander around, have a look at products and so on. That that's got to be, you know, if, if the retailer's not going to exist in the future, it, is that the last step? Is that is that the last step to to getting the product out to the public? And would we see a resurgence in holding shows and events like that? Well, I mean, we could do with some more shows, couldn't we? I mean, I think we talked about this when we were talking about the Bristol show. I mean, uh, at the moment, in terms of audio video, it's about the only show left. I mean, the Manchester's gone. There's no Cedia show. Well, that wasn't open to the public anyway. So there are some European shows like IFA and and, um, and ISC, CES, of course, in the States. But in, in terms of the UK, um, there's hardly any. There's, there's that show that you were talking about, Ed, which is I know is uh, hi-fi specific. But yeah, there's very little in the way for somewhere, someone to take their family or go along with some friends and check out new products. About the only big show left now uh, other than Bristol, and Bristol's pretty small, relatively speaking, is the Gadget Show. Um, but the Gadget Show isn't really an audio-video show. It's it's very much, as the name might suggest, it's it's about gadgets and 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 all kinds of gadgets. It covers. We we were there last year when we fell and we went went for wander around, and and the, the term gadget it covers a broad multitude of sins, doesn't it? From any kind of you know, from flying cameras and and helicopters to uh, to you know bottle openers. Uh, there's all manner of gadgets available. So that's not an audio video show. So in terms of, uh, you know, AV, there is literally only really Bristol left at the moment. Um, and that's, you know, good for Bristol, but uh, sad that, you know, you live elsewhere in the country, you live up in your neck of the woods, Phil, you either have to drive all the way to Bristol uh, or you've got n nothing. 
I've got to say, I, I have, to, I, I don't have quite as much of a downer on on models like the Gadget Show, or indeed, sort of home and living style shows as a whole. I think they are an absolutely prime target if you are selling anything which is remotely aesthetically attractive, and um, is able to um, demonstrate functionality well uh, i'm going to sound strange here i honestly don't believe that sound is important for these shows it's a case of showing a group of people who may not necessarily have even considered that these products existed or were still you know were relevant to them and if they express an interest okay sir madam what's your postcode if you want to go and listen to it you need to go and speak to you know go and speak to these people it will be it'll be quiet there won't be people you know flying cameras around in your face and things like that and it's a case of using these wider audience events to drive people to more specific outlets and say you know this is this is how it works i mean the same with motor shows you get to see lots and lots of cars and lots and lots of improbably orange women but when it comes to actually buying something you will go back to your dealer armed with your show brochure and information like that and take it from there and i think that 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 is possibly the way forward and and it's interesting and behind the scenes a number of um some of the more high-end british brands in particular they are starting to turn up at these sort of shows and events and by and large the response seems to be quite positive okay well you know we could go on discussing this for another couple of hours because there's so many facets to this subject but um let's hear from our listeners if you have your opinions um or your buying habits that you want to tell us about and or, or what you would like to see from retailers to make you maybe go back to a, an independent to buy something rather than on the internet, then tell us in the podcast forum underneath this podcast. And of course, there's also the other flip of the coin with manufacturers and retailers. And what we will do is try and get them on the podcast or certainly get their thoughts for uh, a future podcast where we'll come back to this subject and discuss if there are any possible solutions to what is uh, becoming quite a problem. Now, that's all we've got time for on the podcast tonight. So my thanks to Ed and Steve. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Phil. And don't forget, we publish a podcast every week of the month on the 7th is the Movies Podcast, on the 14th, the Games Podcast. The 21st is the Home Cinema Podcast that you're listening to. And also on the 28th, we have the Podcast Extra. Don't forget, if you want to contact us, we have a Facebook page facebook.com forward slash av forums you can also follow the latest news and behind the scenes stuff on our twitter account which is twitter.com forward slash av forums and if you'd like to contact the podcast directly with any questions or thoughts our email address is podcast at avforums.com this is phil hinton thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next month the av podcast was presented by phil hinton original music by andrew bassett and richard cosgrove the AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.